0: Now he moves on, and I'm going to go on into the sixth chapter here. He says in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's common among men. a man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it's an evil disease. A friend of mine years ago told me that he saw John D. Rockefeller Sr. down in Florida sitting, eating his meal. And he said he saw a poor man. In fact, the man was a waiter, but he was eating way over at the side. That poor man, the waiter, who had access to the food, had a big steak before him. And he says Rockefeller had a few little crumbs, actually. He said just little health food before him. And there's the man that could pay for it, and the other man couldn't. What a difference there was in the two. Better to have a good appetite than a big bank account, by the way. Now he says, if a man beget a hundred children, live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that untimely birth is better than he. Now he says something else here. The rich man actually can eat only three meals a day. He can sleep only on one bed at a time and he cannot live longer than the poor man. I don't care how many doctors he has. The rich man's life is but a shadow. There is no pocket in his shrine. Job, a rich man, said that he came here with nothing and he was going out the same way. And some spend their lives in this kind of an emptiness. And actually, riches can become a barrier. Now, that's what he's discussing in this chapter here. Now, today, friends, we come to the seventh chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is the last experiment that Solomon made. As we said at the beginning, he made an experiment in life to try everything under the sun that's possible for a man to try, to see if it would bring satisfaction and enjoyment to him. And he tried it all, and it didn't. He tried science, the study of the natural laws of the universe. You'd think that that would make some contribution. It did, but did not satisfy. And then he went into the study of philosophy and psychology. It did not satisfy. Pleasure, he went the limit there and materialism, and he tried fatalism, which is a popular philosophy today of living, and egoism or egotism, living for self, then religion, and religion will never satisfy, only Christ can, and wealth was something that they tried. This man Solomon tried it. He was the wealthiest man in the world, but he found out he couldn't eat gold. He found out that gold did not bring satisfaction in and of itself. Now, the last test is what we've labeled is morality. Actually, what we have here is the do-gooder before us. The man who becomes a do-gooder down here. And I would say that this is the place today where the majority of people in this country, and I think still a majority... Are moving. They are moving as a do gooder, and they're going down the middle road of life on the freeway of life. And you find in this group the Babbitts on Main Street in the big city. They're doing business under a neon sign. They live out in suburbia in a sedate, secluded, and exclusive neighborhood, and they're taking it easy. Their children go to the best schools, move with the best crowd, and they go to the best church, the richest church in the neighborhood, the one with the tallest people, the loudest bell or chimes, that has a very educated preacher. He knows everything that man can possibly know except the Bible. Doesn't seem to know it. But that would, of course, cause him to lose his job if he found out what the Bible was all about. And that's the man we're talking about now. And you'll notice how he begins this. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of one's birth. That's interesting. And it's true, by the way. There's nothing wrong with a statement. A good name is better than precious ointment. Nice to hear people say nice things about you. Oh, that Mr. Jones or that Mr. Smith or that Mr. Brown or Black or Blue, whoever he is, he's a wonderful neighbor. Never have had an argument with him. He doesn't discuss religion or politics. He doesn't get involved in any bad situation Really never taken a stand, I guess, on anything. He just smiles and goes right down the middle of the road. <laughs> never veers from one side to the other. He doesn't seem to be too happy or too contented, but that's the way that he's living today. He's a very respectable man. We all think a great deal of him in the community. They recognize him in all of the different organizations of the town, and he does business with all kinds of people. Well, isn't that the thing? And he'll have a funeral someday, and the preacher's going to push him right into heaven. There'd be no question about that. And that is what life is all about, according to him. Solomon tried that, said it's not what life's all about at all. Notice now, a good reputation and a long eulogy at a funeral. That's the thing you ought to strive for down here. But that won't satisfy you. Now, notice verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for that's the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Well, you see, he goes from the knife and fork club to the funeral service, And all of it's done in a very dignified manner. (laughs) Nothing really happens. The knife and fork club. Some man comes in, talks to them on pollution. Not that they're going to do anything about it, but they're going to talk about it. And then next week they have a man that's going to talk to them on some of the civic problems. They're going to listen to it. And again, nothing will be done. And then they will all go to the funeral when one of the brothers in the lodge dies. And they hear some nice things said about him. Nobody's particularly moved. Nobody's going to miss him too much. It's just life. That's the way we live it in our hometown. And very frankly, friends, I can't blame a lot of these young people from rebelling against that. To me, it's a lot of blah. I'm glad I never lived it like that. I don't live it like that today. To me, this is the worst situation of all. I'll be honest with you. This is not life. This is not living at all. Now, notice verse 3. Sorrow's better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart's made better. Oh, may I say that They want to arrange it so you can laugh all the way to the cemetery. You see, if you cover up everything with flowers and you have a lot of soft music and the preacher says a lot of easy things and nice things, everybody's going to go home and say, Well, my, we had a nice funeral. (laughs) Laughing all the way to the cemetery. My, that's life for a great many folk. Now, will you notice verse 4? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He doesn't get 50 yards away from the cemetery till somebody tells a joke, and they all have a good laugh. This is living in the presence of death. And doesn't it somehow occur to some folk today that as they see their friends slipping out of this life, that they're moving somewhere, They're going somewhere, and it might be well to check in and to see where they're going. Are they saved? Are they lost? Are they rightly related to God? Well, that's not important. Oh, Mr. So-and-so, he was a good (laughs) fellow. He always gave to the community chest, and his wife was active in the Red Cross, and they were active citizens in the community which means that they do practically nothing. That is, they really wouldn't take a stand on a vital issue. They wouldn't dare do a thing like that. Now, from now on, verse 5, down through the remainder of this chapter, the whole point is this, and let me lift out. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. But why not try both of them? That's the way to do it. Some brother comes in and says, I think you're wrong about this. Agree with him. And then you go down and listen to that rock band and you enjoy that too, you see. But the idea is one may be better than the other, but it's easier to go with both groups. That's the picture that we have here. Let's move on down in it. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool... This is emptiness. You can go with that crowd and have your cocktail hour, the happy hour. You can do that and then go to church on Sunday. It's all nice. That's the way we do it in our hometown. He goes on to say here, verse 9, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Don't get angry at anything. Be a nice fellow. Don't fall out with anybody. It helps business, by the way, and it's an easier way to go. And all that you have through this section is this. Take it easy. Walk softly. Don't be an extremist. Don't go nuts on religion. Avoid the left and the right. Don't be a leftist. Don't be a rightist, either in religion or politics. Just take it easy. Go down the middle of the road. Compromise. Don't fight, switch. If you're with this crowd, go with them. If you're with that crowd, go with them. Whoever you're with, go with them. You can look religious on Sunday. And my friend, you can live like hell on Saturday night. And you can still pass today. As a Christian, a man said to me that he'd been drunk as a Lord on Saturday night. He said to me Sunday morning, He says, I want you to know I'm a Christian. What do you think I am, a pagan? You know, that's what he was. That's the picture that's presented here. Now, there's several things in this chapter I'd like to call attention to. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance. And by it, there's profit to them that see the sun. Now, wisdom... And we said at the beginning of the book of Proverbs that wisdom is another name for Christ. We're told today that he's been made unto us wisdom. And in the midst of this here, of where a man is trying to go with both groups and take the middle of the road, he says, it's well for you to have wisdom, and it's well to have Christ today. Now, he says, verse 12, for wisdom is a defense. And money's is a defense. This man wants to have plenty of money, but he doesn't want to have Christ. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. And you can't buy life with money. You can go to Mayo's clinic and extend your life three or four years. But my friend, it doesn't give real life. It doesn't give eternal life here and now and out yonder in eternity doesn't give it. Only wisdom can do that, and wisdom is Christ. That is the problem with this man. And again and again, you notice that is said. Now, verse 21, it says, "...also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee." Now, don't be disturbed by reports. There's somebody that knows you pretty well It's going to say you're a crook. But don't let it bother you, because if you take the easy route, the middle of the road, you're going to find that in the long run, the community will applaud you. And they may vote you the man of the year. They may vote you the most valuable citizen that they've got. May I say, friends, this is putrid. This is puerile. This is nothing in the world but living Like, well, living like a vegetable, not like a man. Oh, today to have something vital and something that's real and not be as a few years ago, even the atheistic novelist could write a book about Babbitt living on Main Street. What a picture. And that's a picture of a great many people today. Of course, he's a member of the church. And he'll argue religion with you any day you want to. And he'll drink with you any time you want to. And he'll go with this crowd to the burlesque show on Saturday night. He'll be at church Sunday morning, I assure you. But my friend, that is the thing that there's been rebellion against in this country, the hypocrisy of that kind of living. And many of a kid today, has turned his back on that sort of thing. There are 2,000 of them out yonder on the big island of Hawaii. And I had the privilege of ministering to over 100 of those kids. And quite a few of them turned to Christ. They have tried everything. They found out that there's no satisfaction in these things. And now many of them have turned to Christ. Well, why didn't they find that in the home of people that are church members? my friend, because something is radically lacking today in the home. And a great many of these young people see the hypocrisy of it all, that church-going is just about as hypocritical as anything they could do. be better if they were godless atheists than to be that kind of a person, because they might be reached with the gospel if they'd never heard it before. But when they've heard it again and again... Well, it's just like they become hardened to that sort of thing as men become hardened to things in life. Now, I come to chapter 8. And again, we find that he's neither cold nor hot here. He's lukewarm. He's living today by what he calls the golden rule. Although he hasn't any real idea of what it means and what it requires. He observes that there does not seem to be too much difference between the wicked and the righteous. They're all pretty much alike. Now, look at this chapter, and I'll hit again high points here. Who is as the wise man? Who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. Only Christ, who is real wisdom, can change a man's life. He can come into a life and bring excitement, bring joy, bring peace, bring the things that are needed today, and deliver us from living a mediocre existence. Now, he says here, verse 2, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that in regard of the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Be careful what you do, you see. Don't get in trouble. Now, verse 4, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Here's a king. He can take a stand. Why not live like a king and take a stand? There's one thing you can do today. I said to one of these hippies up in the Bay Area, I asked him, I said, why in the world do you take up this lifestyle? Why in the world are you dressing like you are? He says, well, I want liberty. I want freedom. I want to live as I please. I'd like to ask you a question. I said, if you changed your garb and went with your crowd, would they accept you? He thought of minute. He said, I guess they wouldn't. I said, then you don't have much liberty, do you? You've got to follow the crowd, and you must have, as today apparently is basic to these young people is, they must have the approval of the crowd, of the pack. They must have their approval. And so they really don't know what liberty really is. great many of them take drugs for no other reason. A young fellow said to me, I started smoking pot just because the gang he was with did it. In other words, he could not bear the disapproval of the crowd. They don't know what freedom is. I said to this young fellow, I said, Look, you think I don't have freedom because I dress as I dress? Well, he said, I would say that. I said, Well, look, you know, I have a freedom to date you don't have. I don't have to dress like this all the time. I said, I can dress any way I please, too. And i would be very frank with you. Those of you that have seen me in conferences know I don't conform to the pattern. I dress as I please. And I think we have liberty. And I said to this young fellow, I said, listen, I have a freedom today that you don't have. You and I are living in a world where there's rebellion against God, and that's where everything's going. I said, you know, I can bow to Jesus Christ. I can call him my Lord and my Savior. I said, that's real freedom. The crowds go in one direction. I'm not going that direction. I've made my choice. I said, young man, if you want real freedom, come to Christ. He said, if the Son make you free, you'll be free indeed. Oh, today, that's the kind of freedom. Now, this man that is the do-gooder, he is as bad as the man down in the city jail. Actually, he is bound down by tradition. He's bound down by the rules of his little group. And he follows the pattern. He goes down the middle of the road. That's his lifestyle. Listen to verse 8. There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Neither hath he power in the day of death. And there's no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. There'll come a day, if he keeps taking that cocktail, he'll have to go and take the treatment for being a drunkard. Many of them have to do that. Oh, there are millions of them today in this country. They're all do-gooders. And then there's one day he's going to have to die. And my friend, he won't take the middle of the road on that day, because death's going to come at him and remove him here. Now, verse 11 Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What a picture that is of our contemporary society. Because judgment is not executed, men are doing evil because it's in their hearts. And that's the reason a great many men today continue in sin. Well, they said, look, I've been in sin for five years and God's done nothing about it. My friend, that's already his judgment upon you. He's done nothing about it because he's way down the road waiting for you. In fact, he can wait till eternity. You can't. Now is the accepted time. Now will you notice verse 14 and 15 here make it very clear. He observes that there does not seem to be too much difference between the wicked and the righteous. And there isn't when it's all on the surface. "...there is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity." Why, it doesn't make any difference. Both men come to the same end. Verse 15, "...then I commended mirth, because a man hath no better thing under the sun than to eat and to drink and to be merry, for that shall abide with him of his labor the days of his life which God giveth him under the sun." And this man finally ends up living like this, "...eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die." My friend, that is the saddest philosophy of life Anybody can have. Now, friends, we're in this section labeled the do-gooder. This is where we see him in action. This is the man that says, well, I think if you pay your honest debts and live a good life, that God is going to accept you. This is the fellow that goes down the middle of the road on the freeway of life. He is Babbitt on Main Street in the big city doing business under a neon sign, but living in suburbia in a sedate, secluded, and exclusive neighborhood, taking it easy, and says, I'm going to heaven on my own propulsion. I am working out my own salvation, and I'm a pretty good fella after all. And this is the man that has a hard philosophy of life. And there's very little joy in this man's life. Oh, he has the happy hour each evening when he has his cocktail. But he comes to some very doleful conclusions. And fact of the matter is, as we have attempted to call attention, that some of the teachings in this book are radical. Someone said to me after a message on Ecclesiastes, why, Dr. McGee, that's radical teaching. Sure is. This is a man under the sun. This is not the Christian viewpoint at all. This is altogether different that we're looking at right now. And it does not represent actually God's viewpoint. This is the conclusions that the man under the sun has to come to. And they're radical. He believes in dividing the wealth. He has socialistic ideas. He has a great many ideas that are not accurate. And we're going to see that, especially here in chapter 9. To me, this is a rather doleful chapter, by the way. This book in the Bible is like a black sheep in a flock of sheep. It's like the tents of Kedar on a white background. The tents of Kedar were made from the wool of the black sheep or black goats. Now, actually... This book here, as we've seen, it seems to contradict other portions of Scripture. It expresses ideas that are contrary to some of the great teachings of the Scripture. And the thing that almost alarms you, that this has been the favorite book of atheists, Volney and Voltaire, they quoted profusely from it. It fosters a pessimistic philosophy of life like Schopenhauer had. And the most shocking feature is that some of the isms today in the modern cults, they predicate the main thesis of their system on this book. And in this chapter, they use a verse for soul sleep. And how did this book get into the canon? How do you reconcile its teachings? How do you harmonize its statements with the Christian faith? Well, any book the purpose of the writer must be considered. And again, I come back to this. What is the purpose? What is the thesis? What is he trying to prove? What is he demonstrating? Is the writer setting forth Christian principles? Actually, he's speaking of life apart from God. And he's trying to Make an experiment to see how to be happy without God. And these are the conclusions that he came to under the sun. This is the way the man of the world goes today. Now, I want to illustrate what we mean this way. One halfway between high tide and low tide is what they call the mean tide. And that is sea level. Now, there is today a realm of life below sea level. And then there's a realm of life above sea level. Actually, two worlds. There is the world below sea level. And there are certain chemical elements there. And above, it's different molecules. Below, it's aqueous. Above, it's gaseous. Above, there are birds with feathers that live. Below, there are fish with fins below. Now, there are two ways of life. The mockingbird does not tell the tuna fish what's wrong with him because he doesn't have feathers. And above sea level, you open your mouth and breathe deeply. That is, if you can get out of the smog. But below sea level, you'd be in trouble if you use that method. And actually, I think a monkey and a barracuda could have a good debate on which direction is sea level. The barracuda says it's up. The monkey says it's down. Now, Ecclesiastes is under the sun. The Christian life is in the heavenlies. It's where God is. God's viewpoint is above the sun. And now we're looking at two ways of life. Life under the sun. It's this mundane existence apart from God, a future and an eternity without God and the spiritual in God's left out. Now the Christian life, is altogether in contrast to this. We have been saved by the grace of God and for the display of His grace. So we have two different spheres, and the laws and principles of one will not apply to the other. They're as far apart as that which is below sea level, that which is above sea level. Now, you're wasting your time to tell the non-Christian "...if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above." He isn't even in Christ. No use talking to him along that line. It's like trying to teach a mud turtle to fly, because he likes the swamp, and he's not interested in flying. Now, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And as we said before, it's a record of an experiment he made with life. He tried everything under the sun to see if he could find satisfaction of soul. And in this chapter alone, under the sun occurs about four or five times. Under the sun, and everything must be interpreted in the light of that. Now, he had already tried other things. He tried the pursuit of knowledge, came to the conclusion, the making of many books, there is no end. He tried pleasure, and the outcome was, I hated life. He tried riches, and he came to the conclusion, "...he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver." And then he tried religion, and you either become a lunatic or a racketeer, a crank or a crook, fanatic or become frantic, a nut or a bum. The two routes, if you're going to go the religious route. And then he tried fame. A good name is rather to be chosen. It's better than precious ointment, he says. And then he tried morality. And all he could say is all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Thackeray wrote a wonderful novel called Vanity Fair. If you've ever read it, you know the story of Becky. And he concluded it by telling all of the littleness and the sin and the lives of these people. People during the time of the wars of Napoleon and how they live little lives apart from God. For Thackeray, by the way, was a Christian. And then he concludes it like this. He says, the play is over. We'll put the puppets back in the box. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. And by the way, you could do that with Hollywood. It's the pleasure count. It's the sin center. This is the place where there is fame and riches. And this is the place that has the monopoly on sleeping pills. My friend, life is empty without God and without Christ. Augustine gave that famous yet trite and hackneyed expression, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our lives are restless until we rest in Thee. The human heart is so constructed that you could put the whole world in it and still have room for something else. And yet when you have Christ, your heart's not big enough to hold him. Now, look at this chapter here with that background. The most frightening fact about Ecclesiastes, it's the basis for socialism. And my friend, your country and mine is closer to socialism than you can ever imagine. And this is the only answer to statism, regimentation. What's that? Christ is the answer, and he's the only answer. You can only go one direction without him, and with him there's life abundant. Now, will you notice, I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 9. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. In other words, he says, I don't know a thing. Or, using the common colloquialism of the street, I don't know nothing. That's my position. And that's the position of a great many today. They're not worried about the future eternity. That's a realm they don't enter at all because they know nothing about it. Verse 2 all things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, and to the clean, to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth, and to him that sacrificeth not, as is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth is he that feareth an oath. In other words, it doesn't make any difference what direction you go. You're going to come out the same way. And Now, what is the answer to all of this under the sun? Now, understand, this is not God's answer. This is the man under the sun. Verse 3, "...this is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead." In other words, my friend, you're the victim of circumstances. And therefore, we ought to share the wealth. That sound familiar to you today? That's the conclusion you come to under the sun. Don't need to work? but After all, won't make any difference whether you work or whether you don't. Life is a great lottery. Since you didn't get yours, the fellow that was lucky and got his ought to share it with you. My friend, this is the man under the sun. Does that sound familiar to you? Karl Marx never said anything new. Solomon was way ahead of him. Now, will you notice, verse 4 For to him that's joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. And the idea is here, actually, all through this section eat, drink, and be merry. With a mar, you're going to die. And the fool and the wise men, they just about the same in the long run. After all, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It doesn't make much difference. Now, let's move on down here, because this is something that is tremendous. He says here, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, this is where that, Idea of soul sleep arises here, and we have another verse up here, verse ten. And what you have here is the philosopher, the man under the sun. This is the conclusion that he comes to here: that you just well be a live dog. In fact, be better than be a dead lion. So to be a lion or a dog doesn't make really much difference because when you die, you're just like a dog. That's what the atheist says today. And looking at the human side, the physical side, my friend, when that body goes into the grave for a child of God, that body is put to sleep. That's true. But Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's where the person goes. And you and I are just living in these earthly tabernacles today. So you see, this is not even a Christian viewpoint. It's the man under the sun. I heard a man say some time ago. Well, he says man, just like a dog, when he dies, that's it. Well, that's what he says here. That's the outcome. Now, he says here, also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perish. neither have they any more portion forever in anything that's done under the sun. In other words, this life is very futile. It's very purposeless, very meaningless. You're just an animal, (laughs) Here's evolution with a vengeance. Only it's a little different. What he's saying here is man didn't come from an animal. Man is an animal. And that's more frightful today because we think we've come from some place and that we are very much on the way, that we're marching to Zion. And it's an earthly one. Now, will you notice, verse 7, "...go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works." You're a do-gooder, you see. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And we're going to have our happy hour, you know. And from about 4 o'clock to about 7 o'clock, we all get sows. And that's life. That's living it. Probably the most monotonous life in the world. Are the folk that are living like that today. Now he says, let thy garments be always white. Let thy head like no ointment. Oh, dress up. <laughs> Keep up a good front. And then it says, verse 9, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he have given thee under the sun. And you know, actually, there are many unsaved couples that are enjoying life. No question about that. From their viewpoint, I have met several along the route. Oh, they have their problems. They have their dark days, but this is their attitude. Let's make the best of it. All the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which thou takest under the sun. Now, will you listen to this? This is another verse that they base soul sleep on. "...whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest." Well, absolutely, there's not. Because when you put this old body that can hold a hammer and can use its brain to study or to perform some mental chore, when you put that body in the grave, it's not going to be doing those things. In other words... This is the place you're going to make your decisions. But the body has come, not to an end, but the body will probably disintegrate, made up of about 16 elements, and the soil is made up of about 16 elements, and that body will go right back into the soil. Dust thou art, under dust shalt thou return. He says that concerning the body. But the Spirit will go you the Creator. In other words, you're a person, and you're going to have to answer to God. Now, he'll come to that in the 12th chapter, so that this does not teach soul sleep. It's the viewpoint of the man under the sun, and that is the thing of it. Now, in verse 11, oh, he deals with social injustice and the minority groups and the masses. Listen to him now. I returned and saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. But time and chance happeneth to them all. Life is a great lottery. And if you happen to be born black, you're going to have your problems. And if you're born white, you're going to have your problems. If you're born yellow, you're going to have your problems. It's all chance. Nothing you can do about it. That's the whole thought here. Therefore, the thing to do is to sort of juggle the thing together, and let's divide it, because we're not going to be here very much longer. May I say to you, what a viewpoint of life this is. And let's move on down. For man also knoweth not his time as the fishes, "...that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them." And this comes right back to that materialistic philosophy. And that is the thing we mentioned the other day, that when you get on a plane on Friday afternoon, as I've done now many times, filled with men, men with briefcases, going home. They're coming here to Southern California. Some have been in Dallas, some in Kansas City, some in Chicago, some in Seattle. Now they're coming home, and they sit there. They're not afraid. Why? Because they have a fatalistic viewpoint of life. Well, one of these men said to me one day, we went through some turbulence. And he says, well... You know, if it's going down, it'll go down. If your number comes up, there's nothing you can do about it. So he just sat back, gritted his teeth. And that's the way he faced life. Man, just like a fish caught in a net. Oh, what an awful viewpoint. That is the worst kind of fatalism. And that is a philosophy we've considered. But the do-gooder has to come to that, you see. There's no other explanation for him. And therefore, this wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed right unto me. Now, will you notice, verse 14, there was a little city and few men within it. There came a great king against it, besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now, come a little closer, Mr. Marxist, and listen. You communists, listen to this, hear a parable. You want to lift up the burden, the banner of the downtrodden? You want to defend a minority group? The cause of the underdog, is that the thing that you're interested in? Well, may I say to you, there will arise a dictator. A great king will come against a people that let down their defenses and spend all their time with social problems which unsaved men cannot solve. And they've had now 5,000 years minimum Probably 6,000 years, and it could be much longer than that. And they have not solved the problems of life. How much longer do you think God ought to give man to work these out? Now, we come to verse 15, and I'm reading, "...now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man." And who was that man that came and brought deliverance? His name was Wisdom. And for the child of God today, Christ has been made unto us Wisdom. There was found in it a poor, wise man. And he came down to this earth in poverty. And now he could actually say, The birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He was a poor man. Verse 17, the words of wise men are heard in quite more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. The voice of the Lord Jesus will prevail. I think that's always a tremendous thing that is said concerning him. He'll come with a voice, a shout, the voice of the archangel, and that's his voice, sound of a trumpet. and His voice will be like that of a trumpet. His voice will prevail In this world today, above the babel of voices, why his voice will prevail. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. And this is a conclusion of all of this in chapter 9 here. Christ is better than atomic energy. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And Christ is better than atomic energy. And then one sinner destroyeth much good. The tremendous influence of one person. And it is always more potent when it's in the wrong direction. The effect of your life can be more far-reaching if it's an evil life. And today, think of the effect that certain men from evil are having. Well, let's look at history. Adam's sin has affected an entire race. Achan's sin and an entire nation had a defeat and had to deal with that. Rehoboam, his sin split the kingdom of Israel. And Ananias, and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira Brought into the early church the first defect that it had. And from that day on, the church was not as potent as it was at the beginning. Now, wisdom is better than weapons of war. And that's true, actually, in the world today. I crossed the ocean on the Queen Mary. And I never shall forget, we got up early that morning when it came into Southampton. And I tell you, it was, a—I would say, a tremendous feat to bring that great ship into port. And that pilot had brought her across the trackless ocean. How did he do all that? Well, he did it by the principles that were set down by a little-known Greek philosopher years ago working in geometry. That's the way it was done. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And you have influence, whether for good or bad. You and I occupy a place of influence, no matter who you are. No man liveth to himself. No man dieth to himself. You are a preacher. You can't help but be a preacher. I said that to a man once. He lived down the street from the church. He lived with his mother. He was an alcoholic. His mother asked me, Would I talk to him? And he had broken her heart. And one day I got him into the study. He had had a drink. He was not what you'd call drunk. And I talked to him. I called him everything. I told him how low down he was. I told him that he was absolutely no good. He just sat there and took it all. And I said, Did you know you're a preacher? And he stood up and he drew it back his fist and he's going to hit me. He says, You know, you can't call me a preacher. You know, he was willing to be called anything but a preacher. But I don't care who you are. You're a preacher. You are preaching by your life some message to those around you. And that's the reason that I personally believe that the do-gooder today, the man that boasts of his morals apart from God, is the greatest detriment that there is to this country today. Because He stands in the way. He blocks the way to God because he said, live like I do. I'm living without God. I just do good. And there's nothing that's quite as deadening as that. Now, you're a preacher, whoever you are. You're a preacher in the home, in that smallest circle. You're affecting somebody there. It's like that little boy, you remember that had been a snowstorm the night before, and his dad got up to go out to the barn. He kept a jug of whiskey, hid in the corn crib, and he went out to take a drink of a morning, and he was going out this snowy morning, and all of a sudden he heard somebody back of him, and he turned around, and there was his little son following him, stepping where the father stepped, and... The father said, what are you doing, son? He says, I'm falling in, in your footsteps. And father was going out to take a drink. Well, he sent the boy back to the house. He went out to the corn crib, got that jug and broke it because he stopped to think. I don't want that boy falling in my footsteps. There's somebody falling in your footsteps. And where are you leading them? Even if it's in the home now there's the wider circle of human society. You have influence. You have influence in the business world. You have influence in your neighborhood. You have influence in your Sunday school. You have influence. And you have influence in your city. You have influence in your community. You have influence. Somebody's looking at your friend. Now, they can see that going to church is... you just like dropping by or in to pick up a hamburger when there's nothing else to do. And that's all it means to you. They know whether you mean business with God or not. Does your life suggest to your associates that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? You have influence. Well, you know, Andrew didn't preach on the day of Pentecost, but he sat on the sidelines and he could say, that's my brother. I brought him to Jesus. My friend, may I say to you, one sinner destroyeth much good. You today are pointing men to heaven or to hell. Now, if you want to go to hell, that's your business. But you've got no right to lead a little boy there. You've got no right to lead your family there. And you have no right to lead those that are around you today there, even if you want to go. It's awful to lead others. Influence. What a tremendous chapter this really is.